Is It Rolling Bob? Talking Dylan. He's your host, Lucas Hare. He's your host, Kerry Shale. But he's our special guest, actor John Joe O'Neill. There's a whole lot of people suffering tonight from the disease of conceit. A whole lot of people struggling tonight from the disease of conceit. Comes right down the hallway, straight down the line, rips into your senses, through your body and your mind. Nothing about it that's sweet. The disease of conceit. John Joe, thank you. Beautiful. Tell us why. Why you chose those lyrics to start off with. Um, I, I, these, these, I had to go with something that was meaning most to me recently. And that album, um, So Mercy, right? Yeah. Uh, that, that's something that's been sitting with me recently. Um, a lot of me would like to say it was time out of mind, you know, to, but it's just at the minute that's where I am and that's the album that's sitting with me musically and lyrically. It's just most direct. And in terms of how he's talking about truths and conceit and what, what that means to me, about it could mean so many things. It's mm. very vague in a beautiful way. Um, and just about stories, our relationship with stories or truths or lies. And there's something about it that applies to all. And it's a very vague area at the minute in the world mm. or with people in your life that are, you know, friends or things that you're witnessing. They're, they're, they're going through real dramas in their relationships. Yeah. And from the outside, it's very easy to see <laughs> that all the world's a stage from over here. But, you know, when mm. you're in it, you've, you've got the disease, you know, mm. and you're in that drama. And that's... One of the great things he does is he 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 points at the drama, you know. And so at the moment, and I, I dig the music. Mm. It's, it's, I think it's, it's aged it's fantastically well. It's how old is it? It's you could tell us. It's eighty nine. So yeah. this year it's it's thirty years old. Thirty years wow. old. Yeah, and it really could be released. Well, today. it sounds like I don't know if you know the band like War on Drugs, the, the recent uh, New York. I think the New York American band. It's yeah, a sound that's kind of coming back now, retro. Yeah, <laughs> you know, most of the time, the vibe of that yeah. song feels so modern, hip, mm. doesn't it? Mm. It just, it feels very now that sound, very current, and it's, and it really works with me. I think the content too, I and mean, I've been listening to it a lot recently too. I do think of all of his albums; it somehow seems to have found its place today more than anything else. Mm-hmm. And you know, without getting too political, everything is broken. Yeah. We live in a political world, and <laughs> you know, there's an awful lot of conceit around. I, I miss humility. I miss when people used to be humble about themselves. Whereas now, it seems much more in vogue to to go on about your your mm. most wonderful things. Aren't I amazing? And it's done through social media a lot of it. The story you're telling. Yeah, but I look <laughs> at disease of conceit, and I think. You know, a lot of people on Instagram have got the idea that they're too good to die. Mm-hmm. Nothing about it is sweet. Nothing about it is sweet. <laughs> it rips through your senses, indeed. It's, it's all there. It's mm-hmm. social fucking media. So let's go back to the beginning. When did you first uh, come across Bob? Because you're about 40, 41, is that? I'm 40. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, my gateway um, was the Scorsese documentary. So it was... Well, I could go back. Of course, my first guitar lesson, I, I, I was I was given uh, Blowing in the Wind. <laughs> when I was 13, I, I wanted to learn the guitar. They sent me up to this guy in Belfast on a Saturday morning. He'd always be really hungover, presumably because he was up playing a late night in the club, would stay away for, around for free drinks. My mum would drop me off at this guy's. I'd stand there banging the door, you know, for ages. My mum looking through the door. Is he in? Is he in? He'd come down, you know, just as a T-shirt and boxer shorts, reeking of booze. <laughs> 
And then he'd hand me the chords and, and the lyric sheet, you know, for blowing in the wind. And, I, you know, I would sit there with these chords and, of course, there's a very a real simplicity to it, which is why a guitar teacher is using it with a kid. And, and I felt like this, uh, almost like a nursery rhyme, something like that was like a these Beatles songs that were kind of in the air, you know, why did we all know Yellow Submarine when we were, we just knew it. And yeah. it was one of these songs and I asked my dad about it and he, he told me about, he told me about Bob Dylan and, and one of the other songs was Times They Are Changing. I remember a changing going, a change, why does that sound right? What is that? Mm. Just when you're young, you hear something and go, what is that? Th- those aren't words, but it's definitely something. Yeah. You know, now I can look back and think it, it was newly branded. Mm. And that's what I was sniffing, something that was newly branded. Mm. And, um, but it didn't, I, I wasn't about to go on some musical journey then. That wasn't for me. I, I, I was in Belfast and I loved Les Miserables and, you know, Starlight Express. I wanted stuff to be bright and, you know, I wanted a yellow brick road and kind of escapism. And it wasn't until my 20s where I'd go to parties, you know, and people were, you know, drinking and smoking pot and playing guitars and, I couldn't play guitar, and it was the coolest thing. And these different songs were playing. And someone gave me the, 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 the Scorsese documentary, No Direction Home, yeah. which is like three hours, you know. Mm. And, you know, so I thought I'd better put this on in the morning, have some lunch and watch it. <laughs> and it, it blew me away. Mm. Yeah. It took someone else to point that it was for me to get it. And that's always been my journey. And part of the enjoyment I get from Bob is reading books about it, yeah. being pointed at things, being pointed at the sources he's taken them from, joined it with that. That's kind of... It's not really academia because it makes me feel something. Mm. It makes me feel something about what he's doing with the past and the future and his own place within culture and his magicianship. Mm. Do you know what I mean? Because I, I do think he's a magician. Ah. Mm. Uh, and so it was through that that this kind of the journey of this man, the kind of myth threaded through that of this kind of almost prophet, you know, this this messianic boy who ends up like you know Jesus saying, "Why, Father?" You know, he's on the sofa at the end, saying, "I just yeah. want to go home." It, yeah. it was all feeding into my Catholic kind of mm. sensibilities. I grew up in Ireland, where of course you know the, the female icon of Mary, you know, could have been Joanna, you know. <laughs> When you know, I'm not religious anymore, but will always be religious because I grew up in a Catholic background. Yeah. So I was there for the picking for Bob, really. Mm. Um, but that 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 film was my gateway, and of course, you had contained in it the, mm. the most amazing journey from him bursting onto the scene, him going electric, and then I suppose ending with the the fabled crash and, and mm. the end of that period of his career. So that that was my initial focal point. And so did you have, did you, did you then go back and get all the early albums, which I assume you didn't have at that point? Yeah, I went, so my first point of contact with them would have been uh, what I'll call the folk albums or the mm-hmm. acoustic albums. Yeah, um, um, yeah I, I'm not sure I paid much attention to the, the, the first album, Bob Dylan. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then the other three I, I kind of danced around in. And, you know, I, I remember that footage of, of him him doing a Newport tambourine man and just mm-hmm. and just hearing those lyrics and it doing something to my mind there was something about it that I felt paralysed by yeah totally paralysed it was new for me literature 
even like Shakespeare, the classics. It wasn't for me. It was held away from people like me. It was associated with class. Yeah. Bob Dylan was about new. It was, well, it was no coincidence it came after the beats mm. where they exploded onto the scene. This explosion of freedom after the restraint of Second World War, and I needed that in me. Yeah. After the kind of, I moved away from home, then I, I needed a movement towards this freedom. And I placed myself as the character of Bob and his drama, and I just felt totally intoxicated by playing him mm. um, in this drama. I just always felt the drama of what he was doing mm. and him putting himself in that role, feeding it back into the music. And he would just always use, play with that perception. You know? and, and so you were becoming an actor around that time as well, is that, is that right? I, I was an actor, so th this would have been in my mid-twenties when I was up at the Royal Shakespeare Company for the first time. Mm -hmm. um, I'm working, you know, doing Shakespeare and stuff. Yeah. So that fed, did that feed into your acting, is that what you're saying? It eventually did. Um, what then happened was I, I came back from there, and when I wasn't working, I'd go into the back room and just learn guitar, and I started learning finger-picking and... Mm. I had to learn to play Don't Think Twice It's Alright, you know, I just, you know, which if you haven't really learned alternate finger picking, to start with that is pretty tricky, but mm. I just needed to do it and mm. and I, I, I used that song and we would just learn songs and it wasn't long before I, I, I wanted to be Bob Dylan and I was somehow jealous that, that, that I couldn't, no one else got to do it mm. and it was these these feelings of longing. I, I felt like his songs described a world that the world I was looking at wasn't interacting with. Something subconscious, something more nonsensical, something about yearning to get back to something that you'll never get back to, mm -hmm. something about something being always just out of sight, always just around the corner, and that being the nature of it or the nature of desire. There was something about it that was just... that touched these shapes that were deep in my psyche or yeah. deep in me because I'd abandoned the ideas of learning big words and going to Cambridge because that would always have left me at the bottom of something. Mm. I kind of, I, I thought screw you to that mm. and I thought he did too, mm, for sure. you know, so I, I felt like I wanted to be a merry prankster, you know, I, I, I wanted to go on that and along this time, I, so I was very into American kind of 20th century culture. I liked mm. the newness of that, mm. you know, and the, I suppose the sense of American dream about it, that it was open and available to everyone, you know and there's something very idyllic about that but but I was drawn to that and into Kerouac and their adventures and um, you know, and, and that movement I kind of went back into that before I realised that that led into Dylan and Ginsburg yeah. moving into Dylan and that, that amazing kind of baton being handed yeah. over, Dylan made sure you know, he was handed the baton from the holder of the torch, you know, who was in the great literary tradition mm -hmm. that went back to Blake. Yeah. You know, um... Do you now feel, I mean, having thought initially that, that Shakespeare was not for you, do you feel now that that can exist with Dylan and yes, with Blake? Yes, to yeah. totally. Yeah. Totally. Mm -hmm. I, I, I spent a lot of years uh, at the RSC. Mm. It was only when I... It was a long journey but it was when I poured myself into Shakespeare my mm. own life into it that I started to get more out of it and go oh, this is mine yeah. and it wasn't just about 
Oh, look what he's doing with the meter. The word he made up, or it's not. It's the images. It's these deep rivers. He's connected to the deep river. And some people, when people kind of laugh at the idea that Dylan and Shakespeare are incomparable, Shakespeare's on another another level. And in many ways, I think Shakespeare is this on another level. But what I will say is Dylan is in our time. Mm. He's alive and he's connected to the river. Mm. So whether or not sometimes he writes does or isn't that kind of bothered about rhyme, rhyming dove with love because he's, he's, he's doing something else. Mm. He doesn't mind. He's trying to do something. And he's not slave to the, his, early, his early writing. It's tempting to think that his early writing is that's where it's at. You know, mm. that kind of, you know, it's most poetically beautiful, but it changes. What he was interested in changes. I have to say, I, I, I love Dylan and Shakespeare uh, equally. I love the fact that, that Dylan was just listening to the beats and uh, reading the beats and mm. listening to Woody Guthrie and just becoming Bob Dylan on his own bat. And I just, yeah. you got to love him for that. I also feel, um, you know, in No Direction Home, when he's talking about Woody Guthrie and he says, you could listen to his music and know how to live your life. I feel that's true of Dylan. and I feel it's true of Shakespeare. I feel that within both writers, there's a wisdom, which if you know the material well enough, these bits just jump out at you and you think, yeah, that's articulated my mindset perfectly now. Mm-hmm. And that I feel Dylan and Shakespeare are very close to each other in that regard. I always mm-hmm. have. Um, have you, I mean, as an actor, have you felt... You said Dylan influenced you by you want to go and play the guitar, but have you ever felt his sense of performance, his sense of shape-shifting, his sense of theatricality? Has that ever fed into your acting, do you think? The, the first strongest time I used, uh, I kind of had a direct relationship, a triangulated, if you like, uh, was when I played Mercutio at uh, the RSC. Hmm. And I just saw Mercutio as Neil Cassidy. Yeah. Someone that burned too brightly <laughs> yeah. and was never going to be old and someone that kind of thought for themselves and kind of their relationship with authority and uh, with kind of like uh, notions of romantic love were, were different and that was when I, I remember thinking his song was It's All Right Ma because he was seeing the world through these insist this insistent gaze that was blinding him like this Icarus effect, and he was saying, "It's all right, Ma." You know, he was. I'm only look. I'm. I'm only seeing it for what it is. I'm only telling the truth. And I thought that's something I can really bring into him. That song of that, that courage, that level of courage. And I remember mm. using that song very specifically and thinking that, that that's that's. That's what that is. Doesn't he also have when he's uh, when he's stabbed accidentally? Doesn't yeah. he have a thing where he says "tis but a scratch" or something? Tis like but that? a scratch. Yeah, he, he, just, yeah. he, he doesn't say I'm only bleeding, but he, he, <laughs> yeah. how cool if he did? He does "tis but a scratch." Yeah, he's going yeah. no, 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 no. He's laughing on his <laughs> yeah. way out. My last thing was to use. I remember using the the blood to make a red nose on my way oh, out yeah, and smile. But uh, it was. And he actually says "time out of mind." He does. In time out of mind, the fairy coach. Yeah. 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 It, 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 it struck me this week that I, I was thinking about Tempest and do people talk about it? It's widely re- regarded as Shakespeare's last great play. Oh, I know. Mm. Is this something that you've discussed? And we've barely touched on well, Tempest. No, we not, yeah. An, yeah, just as an idea. I mean, the, of, when the title of the album was released, I remember people went, "Oh, that's yeah, Shakespeare's exactly. last play." What's, what's Bob trying to say? But he went out of his way to deny it, though. He, he did, he's, but he's, he's still not nothing to do released an album of original work since, and that was seven years mm, ago. Mm. 
No, but you can't believe a single thing he said. <laughs> sure, but Jojo, you said magician. You know, there's another, there's another angle. There's I know. Thing. It all fits. It's the too, notion of you know. Also, bricking te- your staff, putting down your pan. You know. I know. Uh, and the other thing about Tempest, which I've mentioned on a previous podcast, but I'll say it again, is that it's the only one of Shakespeare's plays that isn't ripped off someone else's story. Um, so it feeds into the whole plagiarism debate as well, which I, you know, there's, there's clearly some joke mm. there at our expense. I'm sure there is. Speaking of performance, before we uh, let this go by, did you then start to see Dylan in concert, or was it a bad time to see him? Have you seen him? I've seen him twice. I saw him recently at the in the London Palladium. Palladium, yeah. And I saw him before that at the out in Hammersmith with he was with Mark Knopfler, Mm -hmm. and you know I was down front with my rucksack on. I just Mm. went there by myself, and you know. My favourite, my highlight of that was Forever Young he did with uh, Knopfler. Mm. That, that was pretty good. But I wasn't... I, my guard was up. Mm. It was a pilgrimage. Mm. But I was blown away by the show I saw at the Palladium. I think it was some of the same band, but of course Knopfler would have been playing and taking a lot of the, mm. the lead. Whereas that dude is called Charlie... Sexton. Sexton. Charlie Sexton, who's just fantastic. Yeah. He had a much bigger presence within the stage. They had the set. And then I thought the the mixture of the kind of the American classics, uh, or would you refer to them as that, you know, mm-hmm, the, sure. the Sinatra stuff? or the, um, They, of course, suit his voice as it is mm-hmm. now. So then when he moved in to covering his kind of earlier material within that style, I thought it just... It, the language of it really worked and it was delightful and it invited me in to enjoy it. Mm. It didn't feel like... It I, sounds I enjoyed like, his voice. But also the perfect venue. I mean, I, I saw him at the same sort of time... We saw him it, at the, at we saw the him at Arena. Wembley Arena I saw like him the with, week before or something because yes, 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 the yeah. tickets for that were available first so we booked. And I've always been jealous of anyone who got to see him at the Palladium. Yes. Well, he was doing these funny moves though. Yeah, well, he was. For he us, wasn't. Right? He was for us what too. Was he doing? Yeah. Do you mean all like, that, the hand on the hip that? thing? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> ah, with the hat, and <laughs> I thought, oh my, what are you doing? <laughs> but the thing is, the courage. I, I have no. I, I, okay. I was working on something last year and researching. I think I was researching a, an, a, a far eastern theatre practice. It may have been. No theatre, or but it was an ancient theatre practice, classical theatre from the Far East, mm-hmm. and they had this tactic, this uh, technique, where they would create a close-up effect on stage, bringing the focus in close by by wobbling, and then slowly kind of coming like oh. and then being still. Okay, you know, like you almost see it in old martial arts movies. You yeah. know that. Yeah, 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 and that looked like what he was doing because <laughs> he was swaying. And then hand on the hip and still. And I thought it would not surprise me at all. You know, if he <laughs> tilted something from the far Yes, exactly. <laughs> that would have done it before. Time, it? Yeah, exactly. That sounds but very delicious. It, it was wonderful. I, I loved that concert. We had a great time. Yeah. Um, yeah. And uh, I have to bring something up that you sort of alluded to in, a, in an email about just how he changed your life at one point. Like, I think you, you had a relationship that... I, was, I wasn't too sure, as I said coming on to this because I, I listen to the podcast and kind of oh, it's different being on it this. <laughs> <laughs> no but I um, I was thinking about what Bob meant to me because I'm just aware I'm not a Dylanologist people it, it's just one of those things like that people go so far with you yeah. know um, but yeah in this time when I was I was 
going into the back room and playing these songs and listening to these songs. And I was, I was coming to the end of a relationship, a significant seven-year relationship where we lived together. And mm. I remember saying to a friend at one point afterwards, I think Bob Dylan is responsible for the end of my relationship. <laughs> and, and I said, what, what do you mean? And it was, I couldn't hold these songs in my head and where we were headed mm. in my head. Mm. They couldn't exist in the same place. And the place I had to listen to these songs and go to couldn't exist in the same world of that. And there was, it was coming at a time where I think as a creative and my journey, I needed to be true to something. And he was my talisman. And he said, he gave me the answer I was looking for. And I, I suppose we all have our biological parents. But then after that, you look for these figures in the world and you know wherever it may be and 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 he was i suppose he was that for me someone uh, i cast him as my mentor you know and i needed to to go off into the world and and kind of take what i did seriously and see how far i could do with it yeah. and at that point that's that's what i needed to do you know and it wasn't easy at the time but um the difficulty and contradictions that existed within his writing Hmm. I think I, I chose to live with that. You know, yeah, I totally. I think music really does affect your major life mm. decisions. Yeah, and it should anyway if mm. you take it seriously. Mm. Um, I, I split up relationship once where I realized I was listening to a lot of. Um, I was listening to a lot of Lucinda Williams, but I thought if I'm listening to this. Uh, well, I was listening to Passionate Kisses a lot of the original version of her song. I thought, hmm, I think mm, I can't really listen to this song and mm, hang around here. Well, I was listening to Blood on Tracks before the end, so it was <laughs> when yeah. you're when you're when you're listening to you know, you know the those songs. Um, you know, we sat together in the park. You know, simple twist of fate. Yeah. Mm. When you're listening, the, the feeling that the sadness was preemptive I think mm. and there was maybe something I was preempting and it was drawing out of me but it was it was very that music of course was very central to it that album happens at one stage for all of us but yeah. Um, yeah. but it's a fascinating thing because we all have music that kind of gives us uh, some sense of belonging and to actually listen to it and think he felt the heat of the night hit him like a freight train and identify with lyrics like that and know that actually if you're going to live your life truthfully you have to choose that as the way. That's that's a tremendously interesting mm -hmm. point of view to take. I mean, uh, something that's occurred to me is one thing you get better at, uh, uh, as you get older is getting sad. Mm. Do you know what I mean? And yeah. <laughs> there's yeah. different ways of looking at that. You also probably get better at enjoying the simple things in life, hopefully, and yeah. get better. You get better at lots of things. Mm. But you know, he is the king of touching those those bits of you. And kind of saying, go on, you can sit with that, with this song. And, you know, I, I certainly use music to kind of say hello to certain bits, you know. He's also the king of that sort of duality, um, those those two emotions that tug together. For the, I mean, and because the, with the sadness so often comes so comes joy. You think, look at a song like Lovesick, you know, and he's, for the whole song he's going, I'm sick of love, I've had enough, I'm physically ill. And the, and the, the sign off is, I do anything to be with you. And you think... Well, what is it? You're you're sick of love, or you want more love? And a rejected lyric from the same album says, "I can't say whether I want the pain to end or not." 
And that, to me, is very Shakespearean as well. Mm. That notion of being sick of love and for love and because of love all at once. Because that is, that is something to do with joy and sadness together, isn't it? Totally. And, and it ends with Highlands, doesn't it? Mm. Yeah. It was that that made me look at the start and ends of a lot of albums. It, it's, mm. it's, it's, it's quite, quite interesting, that. Mm. Well, it often signals where he's going next, doesn't it? Um, I don't know if it did particularly with that, but, Not really. but sometimes his last one mm. says, I'm going off in this direction. Yeah. They're, both, they're also both songs, they begin and end with this sort of metronome of walking, you know, tick-tock, you know, kind mm. of time passing and, the, and footsteps of Lovesick and Highlands are both very much in that tempo, you know. So you feel that wherever you come in, the, the album goes on, you know. Once, Highlands once is a walking it. song. Yeah. Uh, it, it's a great walking song. Mm. I, I did it in the snow recently and it was, it was just fantastic. Mm. It seems to go, I never, it always seems like it's five minutes to me. I know that it's a long song in my head. Mm. Uh, can't, it can't be, is it like 10, 12, 16? 16, is it really? Oh, yeah. It just, it seems to pass because it's so riveting. It's like a really great story. Yeah. Well, once you move into the drama, you're freshened. It's like, it's, mm. you know, it's like the, the, bit in, the bit in the play where you thought, how long is this? And then, oh, this is good, you know. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Do you, is there any Dylan that doesn't particularly touch you? Um... I don't know, I'm very reluctant. There's some that I haven't been touched by yet, I'd say. Hmm. But then there's always a song. I think, that's a, that's great, that's great. It's, it's, I've got better at not comparing it to someone that was changing the world. Hmm. <laughs> yeah, and just he, let him be. Do you know what I mean? It, it, I think it's you, you then view it as a, a life's work and from a different point of view, rather than comparing the potency of his effect and of mm. course that was at its height within his lifetime uh, you know at 66 or, or, or sometime around then mm. but in another 50 years what, what will will that be as valued as much you know so mm-hmm. I, I, I'm, I'm reluctant to put about the value because I'm learning more as I'm getting older mm. do you mm. know what I mean I, I've no doubt that his later work is going to mean more to me as I age and as mm. my own mortality and, mm. and have more to look back on and as I learn more yeah. Um, but yeah I mean I kind of I, there's some st- like there's some stuff on Infidels I really enjoy um, the, the some of the Christian stuff I, I rather mm. enjoy too and I mean like Budokan I I, I I get on with that I, yeah, I, me too I, a- I, I find it really enjoyable and I've played a lot of that stuff Um I came to that. Re- I came to that without knowing that much about Dylan. Somebody was listening to it on a, a bus. We were on location somewhere, and he let me listen to his uh, earphones. and And I thought, this is brilliant. Who is this? Because yeah. I was totally out. Of, it was one of my times where I'd stopped listening to yeah. Dylan. And uh, yeah, so I've got no problem with reggae yeah. and all that stuff. I just yeah. think it's beautiful. What's that one? That, that what's the album where there's like the, the nonsense kind of kiddie songs? Uh, Under the, the Red Sky. sky. <laughs> oh my God! Yeah, I mean. <laughs> <laughs> I, I <laughs> yeah, I thought, are you having a laugh? Yeah. I, well, yes, I think he is. I think he, I'm always standing up for that on this. Carrie's uh, yeah. a wiggle wiggle fan. I'm a wiggle wiggle fan. Yeah, man. I mean, he's the guy. I've, I've got no problems with it. I've got problems with some of the other songs, but actually, I think that's a hip shaking song for, you know, you can see his six year old kid. Mm-hmm. Oh, totally. You know, uh, I mean, totally. But yeah, the, it's all interesting. And and I it, it, that's what I'm saying. I'm just yeah. saying it, it's it's all interesting. It and, and I kind of I we 
we're people that humble ourselves to it, otherwise we wouldn't be here. That's a choice you make. I kind yeah. of like, you know, what's what's wrong with us? You know, what is it? It's interesting. What is it that makes someone that gives himself over to that? I was talking yeah. to a guy in the pub who, who said he'd seen Dylan in the 60s um, and in Scotland, I think. And then he came to London. He said it was just amazing. And I wanted to talk to him about Dylan. And yeah. after about 10 minutes, he said, OK, that's enough talking about Dylan. We don't do that now. We're, we've all got our own lives. 10 minutes talking about Dylan is enough. <laughs> Does anybody listen to this podcast? He's, he's trying to say to me, look, he's, he's just a dude, you know, making music. I'm also Move now on. thinking, hang on, do you see him in Glasgow in 1966, for fuck's sake, and then go, because then he did go to London, because he didn't play in Glasgow after 66 for years. It, it, it must have been that. When you I, said humble this. yourself before, that reminded me of that beginning of uh, Mastin Anonymous, where he says, um, humble yourself before God! <laughs> you know, there's that crazy, I don't know if you know the soundtrack to Mastin Anonymous. No. Oh, it's it's really good, is and it? it starts with this mad thing. I don't even know where. I don't know who it is. It, it's it's it says, "Are you humble before God?" And it's not Dylan, and it's not mm. Michael Shannon who did the uh, yeah. uh, the video. Mm. It, I, I don't know who it is, but it's it's a crazy album. But that make, uh, makes me want to ask um, what you make of Dylan's uh, films. Oh my God! No. Or at least okay, his I, I acting. Will, let's if say. you're interested in some of the more kind of different opinions I have. Yeah, I yeah. think his, his... He doesn't really know what an actor is. I think he thinks an actor is someone that wants to be someone else and he doesn't realise that he is an actor. Mm. And he's at his best within his own drama. An actor who's lost and forgets themselves. He, when he is acting, is totally self-conscious and has no idea. The, the, the most awkward things... Ronaldo and Clara, what... And that movie, he... He's awkward. He can't. He doesn't know how to stand. No, no I know. He, so he, he has his his relationship with the mask, the actor's mask, with character is so deeply innate that when he sees himself separate to that, sees an actor as something separate to that, he's awful. Mm. He's like someone pretending to be an actor. He can't walk. Yeah. So that's my relationship with his uh, forays into acting. I totally agree. And you put that really yeah. well. And while yeah. we're talking about films. Um, we were talking off mic just before we started a little bit about the Coen brothers because you worked with them recently. Yeah. Uh, Carrie and I were beginning, we had the beginnings of this theory before we met for coffee, before we recorded this, of, of them being quite Dylan-esque, the Coen brothers, in some of their output and some of the, the ways we, we ingest their work. For example, I mean, I was talking to you about the Ballad of Buster Scruggs, which you're in, mm-hmm. and also I felt this about Miller's Crossing very acutely, that when I saw them, I wasn't quite sure and I needed to go away and think about them for a while. And then you think about them for about a week solidly and you come back to them and they're tremendously profound works, I think. Mm-hmm. And we, yeah, we were talking but a bit about... But they don't make it easy. That's no, they don't make it easy. Like, they're they're always, to me, thing, they're yeah. always slapping you in the face mm-hmm. and either trying to wake you up or trying to piss you off or trying mm-hmm. to get some response. And just being perverse, they're just mm-hmm. really, it seems to me, as a big fan of theirs, I, mm-hmm. I'm a big fan of their perversity. I don't know what you... Was I, it... I think they share a lot. They share a lot in common, and obviously they're, you know, with Inside Lewin Davis. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, there's, yeah. there's a lot you could talk about there with mm, Dylan's yeah. appearance finally within a Coen mm-hmm. brother. But there's, but there's something about their half joking, full serious quality. Mm. You know, they they take life very seriously, but don't see why it shouldn't be a joke. You know. Yes. Um, <laughs> and I think they've, they've got a similar kind of sensibility to that. But they're also very classical. I think the relationship to 
the rest of their medium. Mm-hmm. There's a kind of almost responsibility with people like that. They know they're carrying a torch. Yeah. I mean, you look at their relationship with the, the Greeks, you know, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, and the Greek myths within there, and how they borrow, but make new, and kind of aren't afraid of pointing at that. Mm. That's Dylan. That's yeah. love and theft. Yeah. Uh, as in, that's an mm, act of lo- love and theft. Mm. And I think their relationship to that, and the relationship to, for example, Buster Scruggs, the, the, the movie I did, was it kind of borrowed from a lot of Americana cinema forms, the Western, and it was, you know, you had the singing cowboy movie, you had mm-hmm. the old John Ford carriage at the end. It, there was a lot of kind of going back into cinematic past. But the themes were about death, a country built upon theft, mm. death, you know, stealing a land from a native people, yeah. whilst all the time, you know, being a singing cowboy movie, or you know, it's it, it's interesting how they kind of they take these old songs even within it and, and brand them new, yeah. and and that's what he does. Mm-hmm. And he kind of there's something. They're from a similar part of the world too, mm-hmm. uh, very similar. Missouri. Right. I mean, let's. It's America. It's probably about 150 Minnesota. miles away. <laughs> oh, I'm Minnesota. sorry, sorry, yes. uh, Minnesota. Yeah. So they're probably about 150 miles away. Yeah. I think they're probably more urban than than him but yeah they, there's something about where they've come from and where they're going that relates to Dylan I, I think and you're yeah. right there's those little references points there's Lewin Davis there's the man in me in the Big Lebowski there's mm-hmm. man of constant sorrow in a brother where art thou mm-hmm. little little, mm-hmm. little moments you know yeah I heard a story recently, someone, I think maybe was reading about the Battle of Buster Scruggs, and someone was talking about the only argument, someone on the set of The Big Lebowski, they were saying the only time they'd ever heard Joel and Ethan Cohen argue on set was when they were doing the Busby Berkeley sequence in The Big Lebowski, uh, when Jeff Bridges is, is hovering on his back down the, the bowling alley, and his head smashes in some skittles. And either Joel or Ethan Cohen said to Jeff Bridges, when your head hits the skittles, um, it's like this terrible shock and you think, oh, hang on, ah, that hurts. My my head's hit the hit the skittles. And the other brother went, you think that, huh? Because yeah, I think he should just hit them, and it should be this sort of blissful feeling. It's like a dream. He's felt no pain at all. And they went, right. Well, we'll shoot both. <laughs> <laughs> that was the only artistic, creative argument they ever had. And when you said that they take things seriously, but life's a joke, that is that they laugh. Yeah. Well, the, during a take, you can hear them laughing. That's how they operate. You know, they, they create an environment where it's cool. I think maybe a little bit like, you know, you, stories of Dylan's live recordings where he gets the musicians. Yeah. He wants it to happen. He wants it. You, I've employed you because you're here. Um, that we, we for, for example, in that very rare, it was, it was a scene that we shot in one continual take, 18 minutes long, that was on a timer with a lighting timer so that... What? So, really? Yeah, so it was two cameras on you, and it was like an 18 to 20 minute take. So we, we rehearsed it for a month before, uh, for a week, a month before, and then we came and we did it all. So it was, it was they wanted it to have a feeling, uh, to be able to shoot it like that, but to be live. And it created a, a very interesting effect in the in the scene, but they, they knew uh, what they wanted from that and what that would bring to it. It was very interesting. Well, it's like Rope, the Hitchcock film, where you can, mm-hmm. which I know is a, a technical mm-hmm. exercise as well, but that you can feel the evening creeping in, can't you? In yeah. a very sort of yeah. play-like sense. It was just like that. But yeah. then they cut it up because I just... Well, there'll be two cameras on you for 18 minutes, then there'll be two cameras on me for 18 minutes. Oh, I see. So that's how it worked. Yeah, so the, everyone yeah. will have, you know, and you know, one will be really right. close on you, one, you know, and a few exceptions maybe on... Brendan Gleeson's hand and his hat but mm. the extraordinary thing is that you were playing it 
all the way through, like doing a play. And um, oh, that's incredible. It was very interesting. But they, they, they were very cool dudes. Mm-hmm. Did you have any idea what it was ultimately about your section okay, of the so, film? Okay, so they did, it's very mysterious at the it's, end. It's, it's well, it's it's become clear that it's the people in the carriage are, are, are dead. dead. Yeah, mm-hmm. and they're okay. being and that's maybe the maybe that's the journey across the river sticks. Mm-hmm. You know, and I am the the angel death, the ferryman carrying them over, and they don't yeah. realize this. So it's it's a scene about death and kind of stuff like that, and. Um, about how the audience don't re- well what I add is the audience don't realise that you know you think this is just a film but mm. this is happening to you and it gets a bit spooky yeah. um, but they never mentioned once what it was about not once yeah that, that's the costume uh, the costume designer told me <laughs> <laughs> you do realise they're all dead don't you and I was like yeah yeah I was like what am I alive and someone said, "Am I alive, Dad?" And, and I think it was Joel went, yeah, "Maybe, <laughs> kinda." Oh, that's fantastic! Yeah, so no one really knew, and uh, so they're masters of vagueness yeah. too. But also, they, they don't that's say great. on the tin, "This is a, a, a six stories, and they're all about death." But as you're watching it, you sort of think, "Well, that one's about death. That one's about death. That one's oh, oh, God! This is this is what we're talking about." And so when you do get to the end. It, there's mm-hmm. there is so much finality, and the fact that it's uh, you know it does feel like they're crossing over into the river, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah, that seems like a pretty fine way to uh, to end the podcast. Really, I can't unless there's anything finally you'd like to say, John Joe, about your relationship with Bob. Trying to get to heaven, we should have ended up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Just go into trying to get to heaven. Yes, exactly. <laughs> Did you bring your guitar? Oh no! Do you still play? I do still play. Yeah. I do still play, and I, I play, I play piano too. I've started learning to play piano, and that's all down to Bob, basically. As you yeah, said. It's, I've actually got a, a picture in my room with uh, Bob by a piano in a recording studio at mm. I think '64, and uh, still a musical inspiration and a, a creative inspiration. It's good. I think it's good to be outside your own field when you look for inspiration, and uh, yeah, well. Look forward to journeying on. Me too, guys. Is It Rolling Bob? Talking Dylan is recorded in the Peter O'Toole Suite at Lip Sync Studios. Engineered by Mark Langley-Smith and produced by Robin Guys. We're on Twitter at Is It Rolling Pod. Music is by Sam Hare. Ain't nothing left here, partner. Just the dust of a plague that has left this whole town afraid. From now on, this'll be where you're from. Let the dead bury the dead. Your time will come. Let hot iron blow as he raised the shade. <laughs>